Uh, grab a Bible if you've got one. If you don't, there should be one in the seat uh, in front of you or to the side of you. And turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 90. The book of the Psalms, and we're going to be in the 90th one of them. And as you're turning, if you could stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 90. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, we come to you this morning busy, People, help us to slow down. We stand even now before you and we confess our sins. Our sins of commission, what we have done against you, and our sins of omission, what we have not done that we should have. Lord, sometimes we we fall so short and we want to acknowledge that this morning, but we also want to acknowledge your grace in our lives your forgiveness of sin, your empowering through your spirit of lives that increasingly look like Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to work in us, that we would strive after holiness. Lord, this morning we are aware of life's brevity, whether it is a buffalo or a mysterious disease. Our lives are, are brief, They are like a mist, a vapor. But your life is eternal. You have no beginning. You have no end. And you are infinite. You are unlimited. You're unbound. This morning, Father, we ask that we would be humble before your presence. As we, your people, gather together to learn about you. May we find out what we already knew, that you'd remind us, that you'd also show us 
where this knowledge uh, must be applied in our lives. God, this morning we want to hear from you. So I pray that you would uh, help my voice and that you would speak uh, through your Holy Spirit, illuminate the text this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ron uh, decided to leave the country and leave me with the attributes of eternality and infinitude. I have keys to his office. This was an interesting week as I studied these attributes. I felt like a man drowning in an ocean, no land in sight, and every once in a while a few timbers floating by that I would desperately grab onto for my next sermon point or for my next shred of understanding. Because this week was an incredible week of scouring the scriptures to see what these attributes actually mean. I apologize at the outset because we're going to scratch the surface. Scratching the surface. But I hope that you'll hear these attributes, learn some about them, and then see them as you read the scriptures for yourself during the week. That's my desire um, this week. Also, I wanted to uh, remind some of you, you may have grown up singing a song. It went something like this. My God is so big. You remember this? So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. How many of you grew up singing that? Anybody remember that song? All right. Uh, I, I remember that as I was uh, reading through the scriptures and the commentaries and looking through these things. And, you know, sometimes we, uh, we teach our kids these songs, and then we get up into the big service, and we can't sing those little kid songs, which I find really interesting Because if we're trying to teach our children the truth of God's word, then those songs are every bit as worthy as immortal and visible. Listen to the words. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. Do you believe this? There's nothing my God cannot do. Nothing my God cannot do. What an amazing song. So parents, grandparents, continue to teach your kids the songs that simply teach them what the Bible says. And we long to do that as well here at Village Bible Church. Grab your notes. Uh, We're in for a whirlwind here. We're going to start with the attribute of eternality, uh, God's eternity. So Pastor Ron and I have been uh, using each other's resources and digging through all different kinds of of theologies and commentaries. And and basically it comes down to uh, no two theologians agree on anything as far as when it comes to the attributes. There's different terms used for the same concept. Um, There's disagreement between exactly how things are supposed to line up. Then you've got the problem of we're taking two attributes a week. Sometimes we're going to come down to one in the coming weeks. And and just to to break it down sometimes creates these, these questions that would actually be better served by looking at the whole of God's attributes. So I want to remind us at the outset Something that Pastor Ron has already talked about. But God is not sometimes this attribute and sometimes this attribute. He does not sometimes possess love and sometimes possess wrath. He is all of his attributes all of the time. That is helpful to remember when we're studying some of these big concept attributes. Um, They cannot be fully understood without the interaction of the other attributes of God. 
So as we isolate some, please remember um, that to understand them better, we need to understand them as they communicate with each other, as it were. As we see, well, wait, if God's mercy is this way, what does that say about his self-existence? And what, so as we, as we begin to see the interplay of the attributes, that will help us to have a, a fuller view. All right, so let's dive into eternality. I got a definition for you there that I kind of just took from all the different definitions. Very simple. God has no beginning or end and stands outside of time, yet he also created time and interacts within time. Now, I knew when I had this subject that this was going to be a tough one. I've debated with uh, some of the youth and some of you uh, parents uh, about God's relation to time. Uh, if you've ever stopped to think about it, it's not a simple concept. And I knew that this was going to be a very interesting place to go. Uh, there is valid uh, points to be made in arguments and debates about these things, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Um, I think that we need to see what this means. And I think we see that even in understanding that the Greek and the Hebrew, that the original uh, uh, Bible was written in, and even in our English, we struggle to find words to define these concepts. So if you grew up in the, how many of you grew up with the King James Version? You grew up learning, memorizing? Okay, so um, you may remember some times, especially in the Old Testament, where there would be a phrase that would talk about something with the eternality of God forever and ever, and it would say something like world without end. Um, there's all kinds of different ways that translators down through the ages have tried to figure out how do we say what is being communicated here. And that's just part of our problem at the outset is understanding the words themselves and how they are to be communicated. So as I look through some of the Greek and the Hebrew terms, they're really just a human's attempts at trying to say something about who God is. And so naturally, they're not going to um, completely help us to define it, but they do give us a glimpse of what God's eternality is like. Now you have a quote there from A.W. Tozer, and I wanted to, to uh, begin here before we get into the other points. He said this, the truth is that if the Bible did not teach that God possessed endless being in the ultimate meaning of that term, we would be compelled to infer it from his other attributes. And if the Holy Scriptures had no word for absolute everlastingness, it would be necessary for us to coin one to express the concept, for it is assumed, implied, and generally taken for granted everywhere throughout the inspired scriptures. Therefore, all the passages we look at today will just be a sampling. Keep your eyes open as you read God's word and see those things that are assumed, implied, and generally taken for granted. Then he says this, Indeed, I know of no tenet of the Christian creed that could retain its significance if the idea of eternity were extracted from it. That's practical. Um, the attributes of God hinge on his eternality. Uh, you go through the promises of God. If God has a beginning, if God has an end, then what do the promises of God mean for us? Um, things are blown apart without the eternality of God. So let's explore it a little bit. Uh, you see down there, point number one, God alone has no beginning or end. God alone has no beginning or end. And we're going to uh, dive through some of these scriptures together, so keep your fingers limber. And here we go. Psalm 90 is what we just read, so hopefully some of you are still there. Uh, verse 2 is where we get our first glimpse of this. Psalm 90, verse 2. Again, this is Moses. Before the mountains were brought forth. Okay, so 
Think of the picture he's trying to give you. Before there were any mountains or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Okay, before creation, what? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, one of the theologians said this, this could be maybe, maybe helped by saying from vanishing point in the future to vanishing point in the past, you are God. So as far as you want to look, there is God. He exists. I remember being a kid and laying in my bed at night and trying to think about what eternity was like. Usually it was, it was trying to think of what would heaven be like for me. Um, do we get to play football? Um, will I have better skills than I do now? But then trying to think of well, what happens after the football game. Do we get a snack? Uh, do we go sing some more? Um, what, what happens? And then what happens after that? And then what happens a million years after that? And anybody ever done that? And you, then you just start, your head starts hurting and, and, and you stop. But, but that's the point. As if you look at the everlastingness, the eternality of God, it goes until it vanishes. You can't see it, but it's still going. God has no beginning and no end. Turn over a page or two to Psalm 93. Similar wording. Talking about God's reign. Your throne is established from of old. We have a time reference. You are from everlasting. You are from everlasting. So using, trying to use human terms to get us to, to look back, okay, what does old mean? Uh, we look back at, at ancient things. If, if you come to Israel with us next year, you get to see ancient sites that are thousands of years old, really old. And God's beyond that. So using, using the, the time element, the old element, the ancient element to let us look at something that we can kind of understand and then go further. You are from everlasting. You are from everlasting. God is the uncaused first cause. So if you want to get into the science and the philosophy of this, there's all kinds of writings that you can go into and talking about, um, for example, evidence of the Big Bang or, or talking about the, the uh, beginning of the universe. Where did it all come from? And as we get into these uh, creation and evolution debates, uh, really it comes down to the eternality of God. Was God around? What was he doing? What does the scriptures say that he did? So we believe that God is the uncaused first cause. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is full, full of scriptures about the eternality and infinitude of God. I would encourage some of you to read through the book of Isaiah and just start looking at how often the word everlasting or forever or even the concepts pop up again and again and again and again throughout the book of Isaiah. So we're going to do a little survey of a few chapters in Isaiah right now. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28. So much here. I, I had to limit it a little bit. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The Lord is the everlasting God. If you remember when we talked about self-existence and self-sufficiency, we went to Exodus 3. 
where the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And we talked about um, whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, that means Yahweh. And we talked about how that actually comes from the verb I am. And so speaks of almost, it can sometimes be described as an eternal present that God is and always is. And so we see that here. The Lord is the everlasting God. And some of his great takeaway points here is he does not faint or grow weary. Is that encouraging? Man, we've got to sleep. We've got to sleep. We've got to rest. We've, we get tired. God never, ever does. He never does. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't take a nap. You remember when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are having that contest on Mount Carmel and Elijah starts to taunt them a little bit? You know, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Is Baal, is he away on vacation? Point being, my God's not because he doesn't need to go to the bathroom. He doesn't need to take a break. He does not tire. He does not grow weary. That is our God. That is Yahweh. So we see the everlasting God. Turn a few pages over to chapter 44. And this is an extended chunk, but I love Isaiah 44. Isaiah's uh, mockery of idol worship, his um, pointing out the stupidity of idol worship and other gods. So hang with me. We're going to go for quite a ride here. Start in verse 6 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And now listen to Isaiah's logic here. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and takes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. 
a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What is Isaiah saying? He's saying, get the picture. You go down and chop a tree. And how are you going to decide which half goes in the fire and which half becomes your God? What if you make the wrong choice? Which side of the tree do you use? See, he's using this mockery to say, well, all this work is put in and, and you work really hard. You fashion it, you mold it into this idol and you fall down before it and bow down while the other half, the idol's twin, is your fire that warms your food. He's, he's talking about the folly of creating your own gods. So at the outset, God is speaking and says, there's no one like me. And then Isaiah makes the point of, yeah, look at all these idols. And that's exactly the reason when we go to the Ten Commandments, the second ones, God told the children of Israel, don't make any idols, don't make any images. Because as soon as you make an image, you take the eternal God and you bring him right down in front of you in a block of wood, a stone. Uh, how, how unhelpful. Um, and so the God of the Israelites said, you're not going to have any idols, any images of me, because that takes away from my eternality. It diminishes who I am. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 46 of Isaiah. I'm telling you, we're missing out on so much in Isaiah here. So go back and look. These are just the highlights. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Wow. (laughs) This is the God of the Israelites, this is the God of the universe. There's no one to compare to him. And that brings us to the second point. God alone is the Lord of time. And this is where all the debate was going on in the theologies and where my mind started spinning. Like, wow, this was, this was the tough stuff. Talking about the essence of time and how God relates to time. Uh, I would say this. Although not constrained by time since he created it, it is clear that God works within time and he can see things in time, but he is outside of it. So, so one picture was um, if you were at a parade and you were standing at the street corner and, and as the parade came around the corner, you, you saw this float and then you saw this float and you saw this band and then you saw these people and then you saw the other band and then you saw, you would begin to see them in a sequence of events. Uh, also, you could be on top of a building watching the parade. And instead of seeing every little piece of the parade come as a sequence, you saw the whole thing laid out before you. And that might be a helpful way of taking a look at how God views time. See, I believe that God's outside of time. He created the space-time universe. And as he's outside of time, he observes it as a created thing that he made. He sees it. Now, that starts to make our brain spin because we can't do that. We can't do that. And yet, that sometimes can paint a picture of a God who's, who's far away, who's careless, who's, who's like the God of deism, who, who kind of started things and then stepped back. If you read the scriptures, though, you can clearly see that God interacts within time. 
In fact, we saw that right there um, in that passage. He says, I am God and there's none like me. And in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. How can he declare the end from the beginning? Because he sees it all. Uh, how, how, can, how can he tell his prophets what is to come? Because it's, it's, it's right here. Um, for the prophets, it's not. It's off in the future. But for God, it is right there. He's observing time. And so he can tell his prophets, say this, it's going to happen. I know because I created time and I'm outside of it. Now go to Galatians 4, 4, and we'll see uh, another helpful uh, passage, I think, to, to kind of balance this out for us. Galatians 4, 4. Uh, the, the greater context of this passage is, is talking about um, the fact that the, when you become a Christian, you become a son of God, you, you become an heir, uh, you inherit the promises. Uh, but a, a helpful phrase in here is in Galatians 4.4, 4, talking about how we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, Okay, did you get that? When the fullness of time had come. That's a time reference. It wasn't and then it was. It, it, it happened. It became. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law. And the verses continue and they're fantastic. But the point here is that God, outside of time, can interact within time. And in fact, that becomes a really important point with Jesus. Because Jesus enters time in a totally different way. When he becomes a human being. So God is outside of time. He is the Lord of time. He's not constrained by time. And yet he willingly enters into, as it were, time to deal with his people. And to work with his people. That leads us into point three. The first two points are all true of Jesus Christ. And this is big. We haven't really talked about this yet in the series, but... Jesus kind of throws everything for a loop when you're talking about the attributes of God. Because we talk about eternal, we talk about infinite, we're going to talk about omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's everywhere. And here comes Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. Um, Jesus didn't come to earth as a 30-year-old man into ministry. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the virgin birth. There's nothing spectacular about a virgin birth. Virgins give birth all the time. The spectacular thing is the virgin conception. Do you realize Jesus entered space-time universe as an embryo? (laughs) That the second person of the Trinity entered the space-time universe as an embryo and spent nine months inside of his mother before he came out, like, like, like all of us? Jesus did that. That was him. So, so the God of all time, the God of the universe who created the world, enters into Mary's womb and enters into time. See, and then Jesus is born, right? And and Jesus didn't have a halo and it probably wasn't a silent night. Jesus was a a very human baby boy. Jesus had to get potty trained. I don't, that's not sacrilegious, but that's just something we overlook. He had to get potty, like this took time. Jesus grew up. Jesus went through puberty. Jesus learned. Now that throws all the attributes for a loop if you don't, if you don't get into the word and start thinking about these things. And so Jesus has no beginning or end. But Jesus had a beginning. 
Do you see what I'm trying? This is difficult stuff. Very, very difficult stuff. If you go to John 1, um, which we've already been to in, in our studies, you see that in the beginning not only was God, but in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We see that, that these points are true of Jesus. If you go to the book of Revelation, uh, we talk about the Alpha and the Omega. Try, uh, another feeble attempt to try to use our alphabet to say God is eternal. Okay, he, he's Alpha, first letter. He's Omega, last letter. Okay, and, and we try to use those terms to help us come to grips with this. But God is described as the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 1. And in Revelation 22, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, which confirms again for us that Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. And yet Jesus still lives as a human being. The God-man for all time, the God-man. Relating with us because he inhabits a body. He has the scars still there. He has a body and we will one day have bodies like his. That is blowing my mind at the moment. <laughs> Point number four, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And this, this I, I need to apologize to the Holy Spirit for relegating this to one last point and one scripture. But Hebrews 9.14 calls the Holy Spirit the eternal spirit. This is important in our conception of the Trinity. God is a Trinity. He is three and he is one. And the Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit did not come to be. The Holy Spirit was not something God the Father thought of would be a good idea to do something he couldn't do. The Holy Spirit is eternal. He has eternally existed as the third person of the Trinity. That did not do it justice, but let's, let's look at the implications and response quickly. Uh, humility is the first and necessary response to eternality. Uh, if, we, if we enter the study of eternality as, as analyzers, uh, we, we miss the point. God's eternal, get on your face. You are not. The Bible tells us that all the time. Psalm 90, Moses says, you know, we might live to 70, maybe 80. Point being, some of us 80 years old is, oh, wow, that's way in the distance. Some of us it's not. But that is a long time. And even that pales in comparison, it's a vapor, it's a mist. So we must enter the study with humility. This thinking about the eternality of God must humble us. Second, God's eternality distinguishes him from other gods. And this is important, especially in the Old Testament, that God is constantly distinguishing himself from the other gods. When you see the ten, the ten plagues in Egypt, those plagues are not just God arbitrarily saying, I'm going to hit that part of their economy. And God in the ten plagues is strategically looking at the gods of Egypt and saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. I can. That's what's going on in the ten plagues. God is upstaging the other gods. Um, even Egyptian mythology has one of their first gods creating the other gods and saying something like this. When I came into being... All life began to develop. That's not our God. When I came into being, you look at all these ancient myths and, and, and the gods of the gods of the of the Canaanites and the gods of the Greeks and the gods of the Romans and the gods of the Egyptians are weak. They're almost like us. Our God is not like us. 
Number three, because God is eternal, he can give eternal life. Because God is eternal, he can give eternal life. He alone can make an everlasting covenant. He alone can have everlasting steadfast love. He alone can lead us in the way everlasting. He alone can have an everlasting kingdom, everlasting dominion, everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. Because God is eternal, he is able to give eternal life to you and me. That's really important. Do you, do you find joy in, in thinking that you are not only looking forward to eternal life, but are living it right now? That's because we serve an eternal God. An, etern- an, an uneternal God cannot give eternal life. How important that is. How sad we have to move on. Infinitude is our second attribute this morning. And, and when I first got this sermon uh, assignment, I was not quite sure what the difference was. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I still do, but if you're thinking infinity because you took some upper level math, math courses, first of all, I can't relate because I didn't get very far in math and wasn't good at it. Second of all, there, there's some differences here because I did do a little bit of research and looking up what infinity means and how it's used. Uh, we use this all the time or we use things like eternal and infinite. We, we say something like, oh, she has infinite patience. Right? And if you told someone that, they'd be like, nah, no, I don't. We say, I was waiting in line forever. Right? Nah, well, really? That's not true. So we use these words. We use these words in kind of a, a way that we try to up the ante. But, but really, these words cannot be used that way in their proper sense. So the definition of infinitude is God is limitless. So this does relate to time. But it relates to far more than that. He's limitless, he's boundless, and completely free in all that he is and does. Tozer says, properly the word can be used of no created thing, and hence of no one but God. Um, one of the commentators said, this is a general attribute that can be attributed to all of those. And we'll see that in a minute. Well, we'll explore infinitude for a few minutes. Number one, God cannot be contained. God cannot be contained. 1 Kings 8, Solomon has, has built the temple. It's a prayer of dedication. All the people of Israel are there to inaugurate this, this massive building dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. Talking about how great this is. And there's long descriptions in 1 Kings about how expensive the things were and how beautiful they were. But Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. See the humility of Solomon? He does not for a second think that God's going to like only live in this building. And that sometimes he's going to go and sometimes he's going to come back. No, he inhabits the universe. He is immense. There's other passages there. I would, I would urge you to go look at those. But for time's sake, we have to keep moving. Number two, because God is infinite, so are his attributes. And to wrestle with this one, but because God is infinite, so are his attributes. So infinite love, infinite wisdom, infinite wrath, etc. Because God is infinite, the attributes that he possesses that make him who he is are infinite as well. He's not limited in his love. Oh, I'm all, I'm all out, folks. Can't give out any more love today. It's all gone. He doesn't run out of things. He doesn't run out of his attributes. He's not, he's not, ah, I can't be loving anymore. I've got to be wrathful now. That's not how it works. He's, he's infinite and he possesses his attributes infinitely. 
And that is something I actually couldn't find a single Bible verse for. But that's something where if you know Scripture, it's, it's a must. Because you see how God acts and you see how God is and you see how God interacts with his people and the, the declarations that he makes and the prophecies that he gives his people. It must be true and it follows from some scriptures that talk about his being not contained, his filling the universe. Well, the implications in response, number one, again, is humility. You ever read the book of Job? Uh, it says that, you know, Job did not sin in what he did. Um, his wife is nagging him. She's the only one left. Curse God and die. He says, no. His friends come. They're not much of a help. But you'll notice as Job goes, his tone begins to change a little bit. And he, he seems to come out as, as knowing a little bit more about God than he actually does. Maybe God's been put in a box by the end of the book. And I, I love Job 38 because God shows up and he says, um, tighten your belt. Uh, let's go to work. Okay, see if you can handle this. And then, boom, just for four chapters, just this. Hey, were you there when I did this? Can you, can you tell me what this is like? How did this happen? Do you know that? Surely you must know. And Job comes out of that humbled. <laughs> that is his response. He says, I put my hand over my mouth, which means, shut up. <laughs> he stops. He can't say anything. He is put to, to shame. He's humbled. And that ought to be our response as well. Number two. Make sure your God is big and you are small. We tend to, uh, in the West, in America, we tend to make things all about us, even unintentionally. Um, think about the commercials you hear and you watch. Isn't it time you, don't you deserve, it all begins to focus on you, me, 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 I. Make sure God is big and you are small. That's the way that the biblical writers approach God. He is huge. He is big. That is how he must be. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls himself the least of the apostles and unworthy. In Ephesians 3, he says he's the least of all the saints. And at the end of his life in 1 Timothy 1, he says he's the foremost of sinners. You see, as he gets older, he doesn't get like better in comparison to God. In fact, as he gets older and he knows God more, he sees himself more and more on his face flat before the God of the universe. So as we get to know God more, we should be more and more humbled by his bigness. Number three, the fear of God stems from his infinitude. The fear of God stems from his infinitude. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't fear him who can only kill your body. Fear him who can send both your body and soul into hell. Um, appealing to God's infinitude. He can do what he wants and he can do more than anyone else can. That song that I sang at the beginning, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. When you get to the end of the song, there's a little bit of an addition. Do you remember what it is? There's nothing my God cannot do for you. And that's helpful to know because God is not just eternal and just infinite. As we learn his other attributes, the eternal infinite God cares about your soul, cares about your life, comes down and can do anything for you. So if you're a Christian this morning, you have access to the eternal infinite God. There's nothing he can't do for you. In fact, Romans Eight says, what else could he have done but give his son? He couldn't have done anything greater than to give his son 
on the cross, a ransom for sinners so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins if we put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is good news that the eternal, infinite, big, huge God has done for individuals like you and me. And he wants the world to know. So as we go from this place, we don't just... Yeah, this is cool. Eternal, infinite God. No, tell the people around you who need that eternal and infinite God. They don't feel like there's nothing my God cannot do because he's not their God. So we need to tell them. Let's pray. Father, take these words that I've spoken, these scriptures that we've looked at, impress them upon the hearts of your people. Um, Help us to uh, be constantly searching the scriptures to understand and know you more understanding that that is a lifetime search we will never be done getting to know you more and getting to know you better father bless the understanding of your word this morning and help us to go from this place ready to serve ready to share the gospel to the ends of the earth because you have all authority in heaven and on earth and you will be with us always even to the end of the age jesus name amen